0: I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the scripture reading this morning. It's taken from Isaiah chapter 40 I'll be reading verses 1 through 5 and then skipping over to verse 25 to 31 That's Isaiah chapter 40 Comfort comfort my people says your God SPEAK TENDERLY TO JERUSALEM, AND PROCLAIM TO HER THAT HER HARD SERVICE HAS BEEN COMPLETED, THAT HER SIN HAS BEEN PAID FOR, THAT SHE HAS RECEIVED FROM THE LORD'S HAND DOUBLE FOR ALL HER SINS. A VOICE OF ONE CALLING, IN THE DESERT PREPARE THE WAY FOR THE LORD. MAKE STRAIGHT IN THE WILDERNESS A HIGHWAY FOR OUR GOD. EVERY VALLEY SHALL BE RAISED UP, EVERY MOUNTAIN AND HILL MADE LOW. THE ROUGH GROUND SHALL BECOME LEVEL, THE RUGGED Places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it For the mouth of the Lord has spoken to whom to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal says the Holy one lift your eyes and look to the heavens Who created all these he who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name? because of his great power and mighty strength Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint.
1: All right, there is no music ministry scheduled for this morning, so... Hopefully we'll get out early, but I don't think so because I've got more stuff than I ever have. All right, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 3, please. I've, we're finished this, this series on, on wisdom literature, and generally my practice has been over the years to, to switch back and forth, to teach Old Testament for a period of time, then to go back to New Testament, then back to Old Testament, because I truly believe that as, as 2 Timothy 3 says, that all of Scripture is God-breathed and it is useful. Uh, and even there are things in, in Scripture that we may not find totally useful. In fact, if you look at chapter 3 and, and you'll find a genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and you might read to yourself, good night, what do all those names have to do with me anyway? And, and when we get there, we will try and, and make sense out of some of those things because, like I said, all of Scripture is useful. And and sometimes we need to dig a little bit, and sometimes we need to think a little bit, and sometimes we need to churn a little bit and and, and let things work in us to understand the meaning of some of these things and the importance and the value. Uh, Sometimes we don't do that. But anyway, I want to start a series on the book of Luke. One of the interesting things I discovered as I was looking back through my own personal history is in 20... More than 25 years of preaching, I've never preached through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I've preached from it numerous times from different passages, but I've never worked through it. So I thought, well, this is a good time to do it, and so here we're going to go. And so what I'm going to do is to just bypass the, the nativity narratives, like like the nativity story, and uh, we're going to jump into chapter 3, where Jesus is a full-blown adult and starting his, his adult ministry. Because um, we'll leave the nativity stuff for for Christmas, which is coming upon us really soon. And and ladies, I warned the guys yesterday at the men's breakfast. We talked about what not to buy for your wife. So, um, um, and you're not supposed to buy anything that plugs in. And we're not supposed to buy anything that has a size attached to it. And I found out from one of our guys, uh, something that's really cheap isn't a good deal. Uh, you can't buy something that's too cheap or too expensive. And winter tires are not a good Christmas present. So um, so those are some of the things. You ask, your, you ask your guys if they were here yesterday, if they learned anything or not. And uh, Oh, I also learned that as a man, never buy anything that has to hang in the house without my wife's permission and never pick anything that has a color because I have no idea what that has to do with Luke. Oh, yeah, we were talking about Christmas coming up. (laughs) All right. Let's jump into Luke chapter 3 here, and uh, we'll read here for ways about the ministry of John the Baptist. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip the Tetrarch of Aecheria and Trachonitis and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of... Who are those guys? Um, we'll talk about them a little bit in terms of the political climate. During this time, the word of God came to John. John was the son of Zechariah, and the word came to him in the desert. He was out there. Now, he went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, and we read those words this morning from Isaiah chapter 40, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely, be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison." We really have no idea about John the Baptist's childhood or his youth. Or what influenced him to become the unique and compelling character that he was. But there's no denying that John was a radical. His mission was to prepare the people of Israel for the coming Messiah. And his message was this, getting right with God involves a whole lot more than head knowledge. Getting right with God involves a whole lot more than going to church. And that same message is still true for us today. Christianity, being a Christian, involves a whole lot more than head knowledge. Being a Christian involves a whole lot more than going to church on Sunday morning and doing all the Christian things that you're supposed to do. Let's discover a little bit of what was going on in John's life. If you were to try and understand the times a little bit, you need to look a little bit at the political climate of that day. The Bible says it was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, in order to understand that, you need to go back into history and dig a little bit. You know the story of the nation of Israel, how... Jacob and his 12 sons had had gone into Egypt, they came out a nation, two and a half million or two plus million people strong, 400 years later, wandered around the desert for 40 years because uh, because of 10 guys out of 12 who wiped out and people believed them. And then they went into the promised land and went through this time of the judges and finally they got themselves some kings and They had Saul was the first one, and then David. And and under Solomon, the nation of Israel reached its zenith, reached its acme, reached the high point of its existence. And after Solomon, the nation started to slide. In fact, there was a division. Uh, The land split into two, uh, and eventually the people wandered, turned away from God. There was this problem. You see, when they came into the promised land, they didn't completely clear it out. They were supposed to, but they compromised. And so there were a lot of people and a lot of practices that were left over and that, that the Israelites just sort of adopted. They said, "Well, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just add that to our faith, and, and you know like, uh, and it included things like like pretty wild parties and, and, and sex and, and all that other neat stuff. And they said, well, that's a whole lot more interesting than." than all the righteousness that, that God expects from us. And so they just added that, and God said, you know, that's not the way that I had planned things, and so I need to do something about it. And so a number of years later, after the kingdom had split into, God brought a group of people called the Assyrians. And they came down into northern Israel, and, and they completely decimated it, and they took the people from northern Israel, and they scattered them all over the place, the Assyrians were the ones whose capital was Nineveh. They were the ones where Jonah was supposed to go and preach. And so, a whole bunch of Israel kind of disappeared, and and, and they took the best and the brightest of the land and left the criminals behind, and then imported a bunch of riffraff from other lands, and they intermarried with the riffraff that was left behind, and they became the Samaritans that were around in Jesus' day. And so you wind up with, with there are still today, there, there are Jews all over the world because of what happened all those years ago, 2,500, 2,800 years ago. Because of what happened, there, there are still effects from that today. And so that bunch of people kind of disappeared and that whole northern kingdom fell apart. And then after that, a group of of people called the Babylonians, which are Saddam Hussein's buddies and ancestors. And and they came on the scene and they they wiped out the Assyrians. And so now they're the big kids on the block. They're the controlling gang in the world. And they came into Israel. And God, the the people that were left in the south of Israel, hadn't really learned a whole lot. And so a number of years later... The Babylonians came in and completely wiped them out. Wiped out Jerusalem. Wiped out the land. Took all the people. They went into captivity. Seventy years they spent in Babylon. And then you read the story of Daniel. And you read the stories in Ezekiel. And and how they spent time in the land of of Babylon. And then you have the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah. and, And how they came back into the land. And so they had been... They had been taken out, they had spent all those years in captivity, had come back into the land, and finally they said to themselves, you know what, we've been spanked enough. But they hadn't been. And so after the Babylonian Empire had its heyday, a group called the Medo-Persians, the Medes and the Persians, got together and they became the big kids on the block and they became the ruling gang in the hood. And, and they came along and, and you have people like Cyrus and uh, that Medo-Persian thing happened during the time that Daniel was alive and you have people like Cyrus who gave the okay for the people to go back to the land of Israel and, and redo all that. Uh, and so they started building that. And then in the years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Another kid came on the block. His name was Alexander the Great, and he was from Greece. And so he came in, and, and he came into Israel, and he said, no, no, he says, I'm the big guy here now, and I'm going to run things. And so that went along for a period of time, and finally the Romans came along and said, you know what, it's our turn. Like, like said to the Greeks, you guys get out of here, and we're going to run the show. And so by the time John the Baptist came on the scene, the Israelites had had hundreds of years of foreign occupation and operating under the thumb of some foreign power. Somebody telling them what to do and they're hoping for the glory of Israel to be restored like it was in the days of Solomon. And so you read the story in Luke and and you have this, it was the time when in the reign of Tiberius Caesar, he's the big Roman kahuna, he's the big guy that's in charge. When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, he was a Roman governor. You know the name, Pontius Pilate. He was there when Jesus was crucified. And then there was Herod, who was the tetrarch of Galilee. See, that's another part. And and Herod was an Idumean. He was a foreigner, but but he was kind of under the Roman's thumb as well. And so they said, okay, Herod, as long as you do what we tell you to do, as long as you toe the line... (coughs) <coughs> then you can run the show and you can collect taxes and you can do all this other stuff. So Herod was running the show, but the man was nuts. And and you read the story of, of the incest and the murder and and everything that went on in that family. In fact, he was shacked up with his brother's wife at the time, which, which um, you know, John says, you know, son, that's not right. And Herod says, I'll fix you and put him in jail. So we have... Pontius Pilate, we have Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, the guy whose wife he had, was the Tetrarch of Archuria and Trachonitis and and Licinius. Like all these guys were Roman puppets. And so now here comes John on the scene. Okay, The Jews are sick and tired of living under foreign occupation. They're paying taxes. They've got other people telling them what they can and what they can't do. The Romans had set up (coughs) <coughs> their headquarters in Jerusalem in a corner of the temple. And, and the Jews were known to be troublemakers. They rioted, they did crazy things. And so the soldiers would come along and hack off a few heads and, and slash off a few arms and that and, and line people back up. And, uh, and it was this reign of terror. Just like it was in the Second World War when my mom and dad were, were living in the city of Rotterdam. You know, when, when the, the Dutch underground in which my mom and dad were involved, when the Dutch underground did something that would, would cause um, either the death or, or destruction of some German soldiers or, or, or buildings or headquarters or something, they would take 12 civilians and they would line them up against a brick wall somewhere on the street and just machine gun and, and mow them down. And then the bodies had to lay on the street there for 48 hours to teach the rest of the people not to mess around with the Nazis. And that's the way the Romans operated as well. And so the Jews were sick and tired of all that. And some of them chafed under foreign occupation. Some of them had learned to live with it, but other, others of them had become opportunists. And they started working for the enemy. if they're going to be here anyway, we may as well get some profit out of it. We may as well make some money out of it. And maybe we can, you know, get some gain for ourselves. And so some of them were collaborators. They worked for the enemy. And then you had people like the Sadducees and the Pharisees who were as much political parties as religious parties. And there are Roman soldiers everywhere. And even though Herod is technically in charge... Rome still calls the shots. And then there's the spiritual climate of that day. When you read Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, there's absolutely no mention of the Pharisees. You get into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and and here are these pesky, nasty, dumb Pharisees that Jesus doesn't like. Where'd they come from? Well you see the spiritual people in israel said look god spanked us and spanked us severely because we did some really dumb things like you know we kept going back the proverbs talks about a dog going back to its own vomit and 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 that's a nice picture and Uh, And Israel kept going back to this this idolatry thing and and walking away from God. And and God spanked him hard, lots. And there was a group of people that finally said, we got the message. We don't want to go there again. And so this group of Pharisees said, this group that became the Pharisees said, listen, we need to make sure that we meticulously obey God's law so that we don't walk that same road again. And they had all the best intentions of the world. They were the fundamentalist, conservative, evangelical revivalists of their day. They got it all wrong. And they said, as long as we adhere strictly to the law, you know, we'll go out to the garden and, and, and we'll cut some cut some chives to put on our sandwiches at lunch or on our pita, and and so then we'll make sure that we give 10% of that. They were absolutely meticulous about that, but they got it all wrong. And that's a whole entirely different story. But the rest of the people were eagerly awaiting the coming of the Messiah. They wanted, they wanted <clears throat> this, this, Israel to regain its independence, to regain its place on the world stage so that they could hold their heads up high and said, look, you know, look at how God has blessed us. Look at how well we're doing. Instead of being under this Roman occupation and, and foreign dominion like they had been for hundreds of years. In fact, the disciples were still thinking about that too. In Acts chapter 1, just before Jesus is about to go into heaven, they say, Lord, you know, now? (laughs) Now? No, not yet. And it's still coming. What about the world in which we live? There's a whole lot of instability in our world. If you've watched the news at all, you know what's going on. You know that Israel and Iran are engaged in verbal jousting over Iran's supposed nuclear program. Canada and the U.S. have chosen to side with Israel. Iran has said if there's ever an attack on Iran, we're going to wipe out all the American bases in the Middle East. This is going to be huge. Israel has said we're drawing a red line. Netanyahu was on TV the other day. I don't know if you saw him. He said he had a red line. We're not going beyond that. And um, we'll see what happens. It's an interesting world in which we lived. I don't know. Um, You know, the reality is that even though we live in a small town in northeast Saskatchewan, the reality is that we live, we're part of a global village. What happens around the world is going to affect us. There's turmoil within our own government. I don't know if you've watched in the last couple of weeks or so, but there was a vote in Parliament about whether or not to reconsider when life begins. And and there was a vote and there was a division within the ruling party of Canada and a number of people, influential people, got their noses out of joint about some of high-profile people in, in government who stood up and said, we want to reconsider when life begins. There are some bitter divisions within our country over some of these things. Spiritually, evangelicalism is generally alive and well, but the reality is that young people are leaving the churches in droves. And an interesting study recently discovered that the decision uh, that many of these young people are making to leave the church is not in their later teens or early 20s, but it's in their early teens. And the churches right now are trying to figure out how how do we deal with this? How do we encourage our young people to make the faith their own? Within the evangelical church, divorce and immorality are as much an issue uh, as they are often outside of the church. Many churchgoers, like I used to, live one life inside the walls of the church building and another life inside the walls of their own home, and we wind up collaborating with the enemy. We're waiting for the return of the Messiah, that's true, but often life gets in the way of that. The reality is that we can't sit on a mountaintop and wait, so we often get distracted and get sidetracked by the daily issues of life. Now, what about John? Don't know a whole lot about his background. Many people assume that he was associated with the Essenes. The Essenes were a a group of people that lived at Qumran. Qumran was a place where uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. They were a group of aesthetics, people who lived very simply. They lived in, the Bible says, John came out of the desert. Qumran is right next to the Dead Sea. It's one of the bleakest, most arid, hostile places on earth. We don't know a whole lot about that, but John blows onto the scene full tilt. And he had a strange methodology. The Bible says that he came preaching a baptism of repentance. Now, let's think about that a little bit. When you and I talk about baptism or we read about baptism, we interpret it in the light of our own experiences. Whether you've, you've come from, from a background where, where children are baptized or whether you come from uh, an Anabaptist background, Anabaptist means to re-baptize, or whether you've come from a background um, where, where that's not even practiced, we, you, know, you're, you may be familiar to some degree with what we do at, at Emmanuel Baptist Church or you may have seen it, in other churches, we tend to interpret it that way, but let's think about back to John's culture. Let's think about that a little bit. Number one, John was a Jew. Number two, he was preaching to Jews. Now, they had been, remember all that history lesson? They had been through all kinds of stuff. They had been through all kinds of, of problems with, with um, idolatry and, and apostasy, walking away from God. And, and they're surely, and they have no intention of going back there at all. So John can't be doing anything weird or new. So where did this baptism thing come from? When the archaeologists were digging through Israel, um, they discovered something called mikveh or mikvah oath. Mikvah is, is the singular term. And the first place they discovered these was at Masada, There were two of them on opposite ends of the structure, and since then they've done a bunch more digging. And we've discovered that the people, the Jewish people of Jesus' day used baptism very much as a regular observance in their ceremonial cleanliness ceremonies. This wasn't anything new. This was something with which the Jews of John's day were very familiar And so very often if you became unclean, very often uh, a woman after she was done menstruating, uh, if a man had touched uh, a dead body or some other means of becoming unclean, they would need to go through a ceremony to become ceremonially clean. Not just physical washing, but ceremonially clean. And very often this was done just before the Sabbath. It was often or or most often done before the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which is the highlight of the Jewish year. And there were rules about it, but there there were baths, ritual baths, in which you went, uh, and some people say you had to go naked, and other rabbis said it doesn't matter as long as the water went through your clothes. But the rule was you had to go into the water, there had to be a witness, and you had to go completely under. And what it signified was a ceremonial cleansing from whatever polluted you, whether it was sin, whether it was some other practice, or, or whatever it was, it was a ceremonial cleansing. And in fact, if you became a Jewish convert, if you were from one of the neighboring countries, you moved to Israel and say, boy, uh, you know, I want to follow your God, I want to, to become a Jew, then you would have to, if you're a man, you would have to undergo circumcision, You would have to make an offering. And thirdly, you would have to go through the mikveh. You would have to be baptized in order for that to happen. So when John was preaching a baptism of repentance, the people understood the symbology. It was a cleansing. It was a radical change in direction. And people came to John at the Jordan to be baptized, and John's message was one of repentance. He said, you... You need, well, we'll talk about his message in a minute, but but this baptism thing was something that that it, it didn't come out of nowhere. And so what happened is that the early church adopted this and said it now becomes, instead of a purification rite, it becomes an initiatory rite. In other words, it signifies that you are part of God's family. It identifies you with Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. But it wasn't anything new in John's days. It was something with which people were very familiar. It was part of their normal ceremonies of worship. So now let's talk about John's message a little bit. Um, do you, read, did you notice what he said? How many of you would come back if I called you a brood of vipers? Probably not. Not a really good way to be, you know, to become popular and influence people. When you insult, I don't like being insulted. I don't like being yelled at. Usually when that happens, I walk away and I don't come back. Like if it hurts, I don't like it. And so John says to these people, you brood of vipers. You a bunch of snakes, he said. And then he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They knew that there was something coming. They knew that there was more to life. Than life itself. They knew that at the end of life they would stand before God and they would have to account for what they had done with their lives. John says, Who warned you to flee from that? They understood that. These were people who were concerned about their future. There are people today who aren't. I speak at funerals, I go to funerals where lots of people sit there and they go and they hear the message and they don't do anything about it. They don't like hearing about accountability. They they don't like standing before God. They don't like hearing about the fires of hell. I remember talking to a man one time as he lay dying. And I had tried to talk to him about the Lord Jesus Christ and, uh, and he didn't really wanna hear about it. And so then one day he just volunteered as I was sitting there beside his bed. One day he volunteered to me and he says, I think I'm ready to die. I said, really? Yeah, he says, uh, I think I've uh, I've made my peace with everybody, and I think I'm ready to die. I said, well, that's really cool. But I said, are you ready to stand before the God of the universe and give him an account of your life? And he thought for a little bit, and he says, you know what? No. And so we talked about that. And he wound up praying a prayer of confession and repentance and accepted the Lord. And four days later, he passed away. But you know, most people don't like hearing that. Most people don't like hearing about the fact that one day they're going to die and they're going to be held accountable to somebody. Most people don't like hearing about it. We'd rather hear the things like, oh, you know, everybody's going to be okay and whatever all else. We don't like hearing things like repentance. John talked about repentance. Repentance, it's a radical change in direction. Christianity is a whole lot more than getting a hell out of free card or getting out of hell for free card. Christianity is a whole new life. It's not just adding going to church and reading your Bible to your already busy life. It's like losing weight. Any diet will help you lose weight. But the reality is, if you want to lose weight, you need to change your lifestyle. That's just all there is to it. And so John said, produce fruit. He said, do something. Don't just talk about it. Do something. And he said, don't depend on tradition. And I meet all kinds of people who depend on tradition. They depend on what they read in movies. They depend on what they read in books. They don't investigate. You need to investigate. And so John gave some practical answers. He said, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. Well, that kind of hurts sometimes. I like my two tunics. And the one who has food should do the same. Well, what if I don't have enough food? If I give my food to somebody, what if I don't have enough to eat tomorrow or next week or next month? And the tax collectors also came to be baptized. They were the ones who had collaborated. They were the opportunists. They were the ones who said, okay, we may as well make the best of a bad situation. Let's work for the Romans. And so teacher they asked, what should we do? John says, don't collect any more than is retired. He said, be honest. And the soldiers, what should we do? And he said, don't extort money. Don't go power trip and don't accuse people falsely. And I think the message is true today. Religion is more than religion. There is a future ahead for all of us here. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11, 15. Those are words, those are verses, (coughs) excuse me, that we don't like. Maggie, if you could fire those up on the screen, that'd be great. Look at what. The Bible says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Someday we're going to stand there, people. Every single one of us is going to stand there. And on that throne is going to be sitting the judge and he will ask you to give an account. The Bible says... The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And someone is going to be sitting there with open books. And your name is going to be written in those books. And what you have done with your life will be recorded. The Bible says the dead were judged. According to what they had done as recorded in the books, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and hades, which is the abode of death, were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's unpopular theology. That's what the Bible says. And faith, not only is there a future ahead for all people, but faith involves a whole lot more than adding a philosophy to an already busy life. James 1, or James 2, rather, verse 17 to 24, says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. need to get real about our Christianity. And John mentions three, three general things. He talked about generosity. Those who have need to share with those who don't. Uh, in two weeks, we're going to have World Relief Sunday here. We're going to ask you to share that which you have with those who don't. And this is just a general principle. The reality is you cannot, you will not ever outgive God. You might say, if I give it, then I don't have it. The reality is you cannot outgive God. Why should you and I withhold when God has given us so much? Will you really miss it? Can you do without some of the stuff we have now? I hate to think about how many vehicles I have. I hate to think about all the clothes that I have. My wife keeps talking about we should have a yard sale. I said, you could sell your stuff, but I don't want to sell mine. Do I really need it? Probably not. Can I take it with me? Not a chance. Do my kids need it? No way. And what about opportunism versus responsibility? What are my goals in a financial transaction? There's nothing wrong with fair prices, but if you've been reading through proverbs, you know that God hates dishonest weights and dishonest measures. There's more to life than money. The reality is when you love money, you become like money, hard and crinkly. You ever felt a a, a bill that has been really well used, feels kind of scummy? That's what you become like if you love money. And power tripping versus humility. The soldiers would power trip. John said, be content. Be content with who you are, don't use people. And so the lesson today is old, but the truth isn't. And maybe it's time for us to take a look inside and rather than sitting here and congratulating yourself that you're doing okay, you and I need to take a look inside and see if there are things and practices in my life that I need to change. Things for which I need to repent, to change my direction and then produce fruit in keeping with that repentance. Oh, I'm done. It's been a fast trip. Thrown a lot of stuff at you. Hopefully, you and I can think about this as we uh, go through this coming week. Let's pray together, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, it's, it's easy to talk about things like this, but really painful to put it into practice sometimes. But Lord, help us to look at this message of John. Help us to, to digest it, to understand it, and then to live it so that we might truly be your disciples. Lord, we know that the best thing we can ever do for us is to do what you ask us to do, because you have done so much more for us than you'll ever ask us to do. Father, grant us wisdom, grant us courage to step out in faith and do what you ask us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. We're dismissed.